0: Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on February 10th, 2016. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... But we now
1: understand so much more about who the Philistines were, where they came from, what their technology is, uh, their trade patterns.
0: That's archaeologist Aaron Mayer from Bar-Ilan University in Israel. Now I'll turn it over to freelance science journalist Kevin Bigos, who recently visited with Mayer at his dig site. I'm here at the ancient city of Gott, the most logical site for Goliath's hometown, with Aaron Mayer. He's the lead archaeologist on the site. And Aaron, how do you approach working at such a well-known, famous site, as opposed to if this was just the same kind of dig from the same time period?
1: The fact that it's a well-known site and it's not easy to find volunteers and it's not easy to raise funds, but I would say perhaps it's a bit easier... Uh, enables us to have both the manpower during our excavation season and sometimes the funding, um, both from scientific uh, funding sources and also from donations to expand the toolkit that we can use uh, during the excavation. Uh, And I think the fact that there is a very good, solid argument to claim that this is in fact Got to the Philistines, which according to the biblical narrative is the hometown of Goliath, makes this site a, a famous site, a site that if you have uh, several hundred uh, volunteers and students who come to Israel every summer to dig, um, I would say it puts our site somewhere relatively high on the list. So uh, very fortunately for the last, I would say decade at least, uh, we've almost every season have a, had, had a relatively large team. And that means that we have both the archeologists, the scientists, the students and the volunteers, which enable us to excavate in several areas uh, and each area representing a different time period, a different culture, different questions, uh, different problems that we're dealing with. Uh, so I would say that there is a lot of advantages in, in digging on a, at a well-known site. Um, that said, you know there are very successful excavations that dig at a a site which is archaeologically very important but completely unknown from any uh, historical point of view. Uh, a good example of that is um, early Bronze Age Beit Yerach uh, near the near the uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is a very very important site, but from a period where there's absolutely no uh, documentary evidence,
0: uh, aside from this reputedly being Goliath's hometown, are there any other ancient historical records that gave you clues or context of what to look for, what might have happened here, what transpired, any other details?
1: Well, we have, um, very fortunately, um, sources uh, that seem to relate to this site from the uh, late Bronze Age, and that's the uh, the, the famous El Amarna tablets uh, from the time of Akhenaten, uh, in which there is a, uh, a whole uh, collection of letters that were sent by the kings of the very small city-states of Canaan to the Egyptian uh, uh, emperor uh, at that time, uh, Akhenaten. Uh, and there are several of these letters that come from, from the site of Gat. Uh, so that's one period we have sources. We have the, the various biblical and Assyrian uh, sources which uh, talk about the, the Philistine god, uh, the um, and also later during the, ver- the during the later centuries of the Iron Age, uh, it also is briefly a, a Judite site, and then we have again uh, sources which tell us tell tell us about the site uh, primarily in the Middle Ages during the uh, Crusader period, and then later on in the um, late medieval and early modern period. So we do have a nice coverage of historical sources at various periods. It's not as uh, thorough and comprehensive as perhaps we would want, but it nevertheless does give us a couple of cardinal points in which we can, you know, stick the, the historical uh, data into.
0: What are some of the highlights that you've found over the last 10 years, or things that have surprised you about the Philistine society and uh, their relations with other cultures?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I would say uh, to a large extent, um, if I look back, not even 10 years, but I would say even more, 20 years, And when I started the project, I came with an understanding of the Philistines and the Philistine culture, which was based on my studies uh, way back when, uh, which was a certain paradigm uh, that had developed uh, for many years, and that was that the Philistines were a uh, a group of people probably coming from somewhere around modern-day Greece, you know, probably very directly related to the the Mycenaean, the Bronze Age uh, Greek culture, and they came to um, Canaan, and the southern coastal plain of of Canaan, captured and destroyed the Canaanite cities, built cities instead of these cities, and then had this unique culture, predominantly uh, Mycenaean in origin, which slowly became more and more local, Levantine with time, until uh, eventually it assimilated and disappeared. And one of the things that we uh, started seeing is that the picture is very different. And so, for example, we can see that the Philistine culture is not a culture which comes from one place from outside of Levant and arrives in the land, destroying the Canaanite cities. rather it's a uh, amalgamation of people of Western origin um the Aegean Cyprus, Anatolia, perhaps the Balkans, and beyond, who land or who arrive in this region. At the transition between the late Bronze Age and the Iron Age. So that means sometimes before, during, and after um, the late 12th century. When they arrive, as far as we can see, they don't destroy the, the Canaanite sites. And in fact, they settle on the sites with the Canaanites. So you have sort of like this, if you want a, a Greek salad or a Mediterranean salad of peoples of various origins, local and foreign, who settle together and form this unique culture. Now, in addition to this, something that we've recently also put into uh, into the um, into picture is um, my colleague Louise Hitchcock and myself had been arguing that the Philistines' uh, culture, a major component of that, may have actually been... Pirate-like uh, groups, and this fits in very well with, with the um, the gradual collapse of the Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean society and geopolitical structure that we know during the Late Bronze Age into the Iron Age, and all kinds of um, people that were um, disassociated from uh, from various um, uh, states, um, and that were, you know, whether due to the collapse or perhaps also causing the collapse were involved in what we would know later as pirates. Now I don't think they were wandering around with a uh, eye patch, but uh, uh, or a skull and crossbones. But but nevertheless, I think that perhaps is a is a way to look at. It. Now, when they arrive in in uh, 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 when this culture arrives in Canaan, it it forms this very very unique set of material culture, what we call the Philistine culture, and this culture continues to exist throughout the till the end of the Iron Age. And even though they slowly become more and more Levantine in character, until the very end of the Iron Age, they still retain a, a clear Philistine unique uh, identity, as opposed to, uh, let's say, the Judites or the Israelites or the Phoenicians. So I think we've we very much have changed how we understand uh, uh,
0: the Philistines. Talk a little bit about some of the relations between the Philistines and. Uh, the Judean or, mm-hmm. or Levant tribes. I think you've told me in the past that there was maybe more trading than we thought, more interaction than we thought. They weren't just enemies all the time.
1: That, that's that's uh, that's also another interesting aspect. Is very often I would say our image of the Philistines as the arch enemies, the ultimate others of the uh, vis-à-vis the uh, the Israelites and the Judites, is perhaps not exactly the case. Now, if I can. Put in parentheses. In fact, even if you look at the biblical text, look at the, the story of Samson. We always think of Samson as killing the Philistines and eventually being killed by the Philistines. But he also married a couple of Philistines and was going back and forth within between Judite and Philistine territory. So I think that also mirrors um, the situation. We can see also archaeologically is that on the one hand, there seems to be evidence of a very substantial cultural difference, and perhaps the each each group identified um, the other as um, a a substantial different uh, group, and that helped them identify themselves, whether as Philistines, as Israelites, or whatever. But on the other hand, we find a lot of interaction, and that means that we have, on the one hand, Levantine influences appearing in, in the Philistine culture and slowly becoming more and more dominant, And on the other hand, Philistine attributes, which appear in the Levantine cultures. And just where we're standing right over here in the lower city of God, we excavated a temple from the 10th, 9th century BCE. And very interestingly, in this temple, we on the one hand find uh, a lot of material culture, typical of the Philistine culture during the Iron Age 2A. That's the 10th and 9th century BCE. But on the other hand, we find an altar, which is an interesting combination of a Levantine horned altar, but instead of having four horns, it has two horns, which perhaps uh, hints to the Aegean Cypriot uh, influences on the Philistines. Uh, And on the other hand, right next to this altar, uh, among all the various uh, objects that were offered to this temple, we found a jar which was made of clay, from the Jerusalem area, probably produced in the Jerusalem area. And on this jar, there was an inscription, a name, a Judite name. So that means that probably someone from Judah, from the area of Jerusalem, brought a jar to this Philistine temple, which means that this image of there is a border between Philistia and Judah uh, and, you know, you're here and I'm there and and don't bother me, you know, and except for crazy people like Samson who cross the border, nobody else does. That seems to be very not, not the case. And there's a lot of interaction. And it's to a certain extent funny, you know, I think the um, the parallel perhaps uh, is the is the Israelis and the Palestinians today that on the one hand. You know, there is a conflict. They are identified as enemies very often. But on the other hand, uh, we live together. We work together. We eat the same food. We dress the same way. We have the same humor, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So there's uh, there's a lot a lot of parallels.
0: And you actually share the same land. Yes, yes. The the trees. The whether it's raining or a drought or a flood or a sandstorm, both cultures had to cope with the same both bounties and adversities absolutely and i would assume that both cultures also had claims
1: on uh on the same land you know because just to the west of us just to the east of us is the the judean foothills what we call in, in uh, the biblical term Shphela. that is the transition zone between the uh, the, the israelite uh, judite regions which are in the hill country and the Philistine regions which are in the coastal plain. And the back and forth, the seesaw relationship between the Philistines and Israelites occurred in the Shephelah. And when the Philistines were stronger, they pushed east. When the Israelites were stronger, they pushed west. So I would assume that those areas were claimed by both, and just like there's pe- there are cultures and peoples who
0: have claims on the same tract of lands uh, uh, today. And just to give uh, listeners an idea, how far are we from the coast and how far are we from Jerusalem or Tel Aviv?
1: Okay, we're about um, 20 kilometers uh, from the coast, 20, 25 kilometers from the coast, and about 30, 35 kilometers from Jerusalem. We're about halfway between the the modern city of Jerusalem and the modern city of Ashkelon. One of your recent discoveries
0: were the gates of the city.
1: Okay, one of the uh, interesting aspects that we found very early on in the project is that while the the Tell, the mound of Tell Asafi, was well known, and it's about um, uh, 17 hectares in size, a relatively large uh, size site. Um, when we started the project, we noticed that to the north of the site, there's an extensive lower city, which once we started excavating, we saw was uh, occupied during the Iron Age, primarily during the late Iron I and Iron Age IIa, which means uh, as far as uh, periods and centuries, that's about from the 11th century. Till the end of the ninth century. And if you parallel that to the the biblical history, that's the, the time slightly before, during the United Kingdom, the time of David and Solomon, and slightly afterwards. Now, that this being the case, we claim that the city of God during this period was one of the largest cities in Philistia for sure, and perhaps in the entire uh, land of Israel at the time. Uh, probably reaching something like uh, between 40 to 50 hectares, which is twice or three times the size of most medium to large sites in the in the region. Uh, and this being the case, it was a very good argument uh, to say that um, the site of Gat was perhaps the most important of the Philistine sites and perhaps the most dominant city-state in southern Canaan at the time. Now, this had a very important um, uh, re- uh, reflection, is that if a uh, Got during the tenth and 9th century was was a large city state, what does this say about its relationship with the kingdom of Judah, the incipient, the early kingdom of Judah at the time? And I'm sure many of uh, many of the listeners are familiar with the uh, the debate about a the historicity and if we accept the existence of the kingdom of David and Solomon, how large it is, how how does it relate to what's written about it in the Bible? Now, I think all would agree that the the biblical description of uh, of a kingdom from the from the uh, Nile's to the Euphrates is a figment of a his, of a ideological imagination. But I would think the the, the most middle of the road scholars are debating there was a, there was a kingdom, but how large was it? Now, if we have a large city state situated on the border between Philistia and the uh, the Judean foothills, the Shephelah, uh, that probably indicates that the that the uh, Judean kingdom during the time of Datum Solomon, could not have expanded past this point. Now, this has been debated, and one of the claims that some of the people said that, well, that's it was a city, but it wasn't important, and in any case, the Judites overcame it, was that there was no fortifications. And so this season, uh, I decided that I have to f- find out whether there are fortifications or not, and we excavated a whole series of new uh, squares um, to try to determine this. And we were very fortunate to find both uh, remains of a very, very substantial fortification, but more uh, excitingly, uh, what seems to be the remains of a very large city gate. Now, so that answers the, the issue when, yes, this is not only a large city, but it's a very substantially fortified city at the time. So I think we can Quite confidently, say that yes, Got was the largest, strongest, and perhaps most dominant city-state at the time, and that would mean that would it stop the Judai Kingdom from expanding westward? And a, a nice example to perhaps the power of Got is there's a well-known site called Hirbit Kayafa, which is a site which has been associated um, both by the excavator and in the popular press with King David, which uh, which seems to be a Judai site which is located about 10 kilometers to the to the east of us. And this site was a fortified site, but it was abandoned and destroyed uh, soon after it was um, built somewhere in the early 10th century. So this would seem to indicate that perhaps the kingdom of God is the kingdom that destroyed or caused that site to be abandoned because they said, hey, hey, guys uh, from the Judite kingdom, it's very nice that you're trying to expand westwards, but... Don't come near us. And that's perhaps what happened there. Now, the very fact that we have a monumental gate here is interesting from various perspectives. First of all, going back to your first uh, question about what is it like excavating a well-known site? Well, one of the stories that, uh, that the Bible tells us about Got is that king, uh, young King David, before he was a king, escaping from Saul, runs to Achish, the king of Got, and he comes to the gate of the city And he wants to uh, escape from Saul. And uh, according to the biblical narrative, uh, Achish's servants say, you know, don't let him in. He's the guy who killed uh, Goliath. He's our enemy. And uh, David supposedly realizes he's in danger. And then he fakes uh, that he's a a crazy man, um, Marks makes marks, you know, uh, X's on the gate and sort of dribbles down his beard. Now, this is this is the gate of God. So if you want to connect something that has a, a story behind it, you know, maybe maybe this is the gate the, the, the author was thinking about. And of course, people were joking that we have to start looking for uh, spittle and doing DNA analysis of it. Well, I don't know if that will actually uh, uh, occur, but nevertheless, that's even if the story itself has no historical basis, it's a yarn that is very popular and well known that can be connected to the excavation, which will help us. Have volunteers um, um, raise funds, which will enable us to do um, good archaeology. And I think the uh, I think it's a mistake. There is very often this feeling: well, since the biblical text is uh, is a an, uh, an edited text, it's an ideological text. So let's push it aside and not even relate to it. I think that's a mistake. You have to realize that it's not a history, uh, a historical text in the modern sense of the word. You can't open up the text and say, oh, it says David is here, so there he was but rather it's a in an edited text, an ideological text. It was edited over centuries, etc. Nevertheless, it has meaning, both in the modern sense for people who come from the Judeo-Christian culture, and there are reflections of historical kernels in the biblical text that if we're careful and we know how to do this in a very judicious manner, we may actually be able to find it. So Let's take the story of the gate of uh, of uh, God and Ahlish and, 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 and David. Maybe the story didn't occur at all, but perhaps the author was aware of the gate of God, Gat, and perhaps he wrote that story with the gate of God Gat in mind. And that story has a moral purpose. Has a moral purpose. And, and, and again, but let's let's put aside for a second the the ideology, the religion from from someone studying the past. If I would examine. The, uh, the stories of King Arthur, and I could say that almost with, uh, for sure, almost none of the stories of King Arthur occurred. But nevertheless, the, king, the 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 Knights of the Round Table were written within a certain historical context. Perhaps I can find that historical context, and I think that's perhaps the way to uh, approach the, the biblical text in relation to, to a site such as this. Now, another very important thing about the gate is that we know from many. Uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, sites that the gate of the city, or the gates of the city, are very often the place where a lot of the public functions go on. That means that we will have uh, economic functions, markets. We will have judicial functions. We will have cultic functions, and other uh, public activities going on. We already have a temple over there, and what seems to be an area where there's metal- m- a metallurgical production, and All around us, there are these, and we can see this in the aerial photographs, there are large structures right below surface. So there is a very good possibility that in the future seasons, we will be able to uncover some very interesting uh, finds relating to the gate. Now, just as a reminder, uh, one of the most famous inscriptions ever found in in this region was the so-called House of David inscription, which seems to be an inscription... Put up by Hazael, the king of Ram Damascus, when he destroyed the city of Dan in northern Israel, and which he mentions that he killed the king of Israel and the king of uh, and the king of the house of David. This was found right in the right in the front of this of the city gate at Dan. So perhaps we might even find other uh, monumental inscriptions and other significant
0: finds in the context of of this gate. And do you have any expectations about what the architectural style of this gate might be? We know of
1: quite a few Iron Age city gates um, in both um, in the Israelite culture, the Judah culture, the Philistine culture, and, and many neighboring cultures. So I would assume that it's going to be something uh, similar to that. If you're familiar with the gates of Iron Age Megiddo or the gates of Iron Age Gezer not far from here or the Gate of Dan, which I mentioned, I would assume that's going to be something in that f- uh, uh, framework. It's quite large in, uh, from what we can see as far as it's, you know, the 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 area which it covers just from the initial, uh, you know, surface area that we've we've uh, discovered. Um, and I doubt it's going to be something completely different, uh, although um, perhaps um, in the Philistine culture, they have their own specific, uh, you know, traditions and building, and maybe we'll let's we'll, we'll see that. Right now, it's made out of uh, uh, what seems to be a, a stone foundation with a mud bricks uh, superstructure, which is very common in all the region. So not quarried stone, not cut stone. Well, uh, some of the, some of the stone that you see here is quarried, you know, cut. It's all, I would say it's all quarried, but it's the question is, is it whether worked or not? Uh, Some of it is worked, but I would say most of it seems to be um, field stone, which are very, very um, only partially worked.
0: And Aaron, talk a little bit about how molecular bioarchaeology, or you may use a different term, advances in DNA and... uh, mass spectrometry have enabled archaeologists to find out more details from the past that just weren't available before about what people ate or what kind of spices they used? Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, one of the things that archaeologists who are now working
1: on the cutting edge of of archaeology in the last uh, decade or so, we're really, um, to a certain extent, using a whole new uh, toolkit uh, that much of which was not available just a few decades ago. And I like the analogy, it's as if, uh, if you compare 19th century medicine and 21st century medicine. You're doing the same thing, but using almost completely different tools. And, and your, the ability to, um, to heal patients uh, and to understand what's going on is so, is so different. And the same thing goes for archaeology. We're basically doing the same thing as I was taught 30, 40 years ago. Uh, and uh, we're basically doing the same thing as Albright, McAllister, and all the Petrie did way back when. But we've moved to a completely new set of, uh, of tools. Uh, on the one hand, still uh, relating to the many of the old um, methods, pottery typology, stratigraphy, etc. But we moved into uh, being able to look at, um, I would say, the micro. Uh, view of, of, the, of the ancient uh, remains. And since what we see archaeologically represents only a very small amount of what actually was there in the past, and I always like using the, the analogy of imagine having a crossword puzzle of 10,000 pieces, of which only 300 remain, and they didn't even give us the, co- the, the picture on the cover of the box. So we have to utilize as many methods, perspectives, and analytic techniques to try to understand how these pieces connect to each other and how they um, make a, a broader picture. So the fact that now we can bring in all kinds of new uh, perspectives, all kinds of new analyses that were not available before, really, um, I would say, enhances the our understanding of the past. Now, I'm not saying is that we're now, you know, I suppose we used to think that the beast people are Philistines, and now we know they're aliens. It's not as, as crazy as that. But we now understand so much more about who the Philistines were, where they came from, what their technology is, uh, their trade patterns, et cetera. So you, you for example, mentioned DNA. So uh, one of the things that we have now shown is, uh, surprise, surprise, the, the, the pigs that the Philistines uh, used were pigs that were brought from Europe, we, had, we would have had no ability to know this unless uh, you use um, genetic uh, ancient genetic analysis. Um, if we want to understand what type of technology the Philistines use, so for example, uh, doing um, infrared spectrometry on Philistine plaster, we understood that it's a type of uh, plaster technology which was not uh, common in this region. It was brought from the Aegean. Uh, if we want to talk about, uh, you mentioned spices, incense, so we now know that in the Iron Age, there were spices uh, such as cinnamon and nutmeg that were which were brought to this region from the uh, Indian subcontinent, which up till now, which was something that we had no ability to understand. So all kinds of things like this really add, I would say, depth and color, put some flesh on the bones of the story that we're, that we're telling. And it's not only in the past, we very often would excavate with the Old fashioned techniques and find something interesting and bring it back to the lab, and, and you know, months, years after the excavation, and hopefully uh, something would be understood in very often not in context. One of the things that many of the uh, cutting edge archaeologists are doing nowadays is, is bringing the scientists to fully participate in the field and have their perspectives and their analytic abilities um, input during the excavation. And this means that we can find new types of sediments and new types of objects and finds and understand them in the field and very often change the way we excavate a specific area, locus, um, based on the fact that this is something that deserves specific attention, more sampling, uh, et cetera. Or if you're dealing with, um, for example, um, skeleton remains and there's a chance of DNA, ancient DNA preservation, so you have to start working in in sort of like... um, uh, crime lab, uh, uh, type of, uh, environment. And, and these are things that unless you know that it's right there in the field, you're going to destroy the evidence before you have a chance to really analyze it.
0: And Aaron, it sounds like you have, uh, a lot of years of, uh, interesting work ahead on this. Do you think this site is going to go on for many years? Well, when I started the site, I thought I would
1: excavate for, for a decade and I would understand this site completely and now we're, start, we're in our 20th year, and every year I sort of understand on one hand I understand more, but then it's like one step forward, two step backwards. Um, and I, for many years, was planning sort of to go on for maybe till, uh, you know, for 20, somewhere between 20 and 25 years. And just this season we have so many new finds that I, I'm sort of wondering how much more I'm going to be going. And uh, I, I think I would like to do a, a couple of things. One, I'll continue as long as I have fun. You know, because there's no reason to do archaeology if you're not having fun. I'll continue uh, if the questions are interesting and uh, provocative and uh, there's a chance of finding new and, and uh, I would say paradigm changing um, things. And, of course, uh, if the volunteers and the funding
0: uh, uh, keeps uh, coming. Yeah. Sounds great. Aaron, thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for coming. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out our ongoing coverage of gravitational waves. Sounds like some big news on that front is coming our way. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For a Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.